The last royal wedding I was at was on the 14th of November, 1973. I use at in that sentence in the loosest possible sense. I was a second-year law student at King's, still savouring the available drama of London life, and I took up my place in the ten deep crowds lining the mall for the wedding of Princess Anne to Captain Mark Phillips. I remember waving and cheering, a little self-consciously, it has to be said, at the limos, uh, passing, containing the bride and most of the royal family, on their way to Westminster Abbey. It was all strangely moving, and I felt proud to be there, glad in a strange way to be part of it. Here were people immensely removed from me in all sorts of ways, full of wealth and privilege, and yet somehow my representatives. A hundred million people apparently watched that wedding on the television. And then on the 29th of July, 1981, eight years later, Prince Charles married 20-year-old Lady Diana Spencer. And apparently a billion people across the world, I among them, watched that wedding in St. Paul's on TV. It was a royal wedding which gripped the imagination of the nation and the world, the stuff of which fairy tales are made, said Archbishop Runcie. Well, both those marriages very sadly ended, and the fairy tale was to turn into something of a nightmare. So much hope and promise drifted into tragedy and failure. Well, tonight in Psalm 45, we're looking at an ancient love song specifically composed for a dazzling royal wedding in the line of David. We're not told whose wedding. Maybe it was initially for Solomon in his marriage to the princess of Egypt, Pharaoh's daughter. We'll never know. What matters is that we have here in this messianic psalm a vision of a wedding, a royal groom and his beautiful bride going, yes, way beyond any earthly event any specific monarch, which will be seen not by an audience of mere millions, but by the entire universe. For this gives us a glimpse, not of the stuff of fairy tales, but of the eternal love story undergirding the whole of reality, the story, friends, of why God created the world at all. and of why people fall in love and get married in the world today. And we sense quite soon in the text, you probably felt this, that there must be one greater than Solomon, as Matthew 12, 42 puts it, being spoken of here. And by the time we get into the New Testament, and the only time this psalm is mentioned in the New Testament, there in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, we find that verses 6 and 7 of our text are quoted directly and deployed by that equally inspired biblical author to underline nothing less than the incomparable greatness and superiority of Jesus He's the one who now occupies the everlasting throne promised for the house of David long ago in 2 Samuel 7.16. So, every time any bride and groom stand anywhere in the world and take their vows, 
And I stood on this spot myself 44 years ago, taking my vows with Jean. They are, whether they realize it or not, reenacting the biblical love story which lies at the heart of all reality. God steps down out of eternity, he enters time, he takes on flesh, he pursues and wins his earthly bride, the church, his people, with the sincerest love so that he can fit her to be with him forever. That dramatic super-reality is the breathtaking reason human marriage exists. It's remarkable. It's what Paul calls in Ephesians 5.32 a profound mystery. And when we look at a passage like Ephesians 5, we shouldn't think that Christ and the church are the metaphor in that passage. No, it's the reverse. Christ and the church are the reality of realities, and our Christian marriages are the metaphors. Every Christian marriage points beyond itself to the perfect union we all share, married or single, with the Lord Jesus Christ, if we're his. Heavens and earth were created for the marriage of Adam and Eve. The new heaven and the new earth will be created for the marriage of Christ and his bride. Whole of cosmic reality exists as the sphere of the eternal honeymoon of the perfect husband and the perfect bride forever. In a phrase of Ray Ortland, human marriage has always been intended by God to serve as a prophetic whisper of the eternal marriage. And that's why, hard as it is at times to believe, the church is the most important and privileged organization on the planet. Well, we glimpse some of that here in Psalm 45. It's a psalm about, is, is it a psalm about some ancient royal wedding millennia ago? Yes. Does it convey what C.S. Lewis termed its second meaning, spiritual truth about the relationship of Jesus to his church? Yes. We're discovering, aren't we, in these evening adventures in the Psalms, just how many look forward to Jesus and speak of him. That's so often the thrill of digging into the uh, Old Testament. And, And we find here that ultimately the story of the Bible is a story of a romance. It's not just that God loves us as unworthy sinners and redeems us in Christ. Here is a love which actually desires us chooses us, delights in us, and dare we put it in this way, is in love with us. We're not only saved, we're wooed. We're not only redeemed, we're desired. Well, no wonder the psalmist in verse 1 says his heart is stirred. By a noble theme, we don't often get an insight into the Psalms, into the composition process. But this enthusiastic court poet, this sort of latter-day poet laureate stroke toastmaster-in-chief, has the very opposite of writer's block. It's just pouring out of his heart. 
His song is from the heart, it's about the heart, and it's written to stir our hearts. The theme doesn't get any bigger or more exciting than this. He is literally inspired, ecstatic. One translation has it, my heart overflows with inspired words. Or the message paraphrase has it, my heart bursts its banks. He's warming to his theme. Well, you probably have seen the threefold shape of what follows. Verses 2 to 9 are addressed to the king, the royal bridegroom. Verses 10 to 15 are addressed to the bride, and they slip in a few hello magazine details about that dress. Verse 13, and then verses 16 and 17 are a sort of benediction, probably addressed to the groom again. The wedding is soon to be over, but not the wonder of it all. The relationship is destined to be extraordinarily and unforgettably fruitful and lasting, those last few verses tell us. Immortalized like all good romances forever and ever. Verse 17, this one really is happily ever after. And the whole world, the nations, will take note. And the headline here, a little bit like chapter 1 of Hebrews, is what an incomparable person. The name which is above every other name, as Paul puts it in Philippians 2, and at which every knee will bow. There's no one like him. This is King Jesus. Well, let's look a little bit more, first of all, at what I've called the stature of the king, verses 2 to 5. Every devout Israelite, I suspect, had probably wondered at some point about the ideal person, the coming king, who would shine through all the flawed figures of history. The king here in verse Psalm 45, we see looks good, sounds good, is good, comes good, and even verse 8, smells good. Every detail of him is pleasing. He quite simply delights. Verse 2, you are the most excellent of men, literally beautified with beauty. Was Jesus handsome? What do you you think? Saul and David were, we're told that. Yes, I know Isaiah 53 says that he had no form of comeliness, that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. I wonder if that's what contemporaries said dismissively about Jesus. Or I wonder if that's what he looked like at the cross when his persecutors did their worst. I have no difficulty singing that lovely old German hymn, Fairest Lord Jesus. I don't doubt for a moment that Jesus was a profoundly attractive person. Magnetic. Children loved him. Crowds followed him. His closest friends, women and men, adored him. Well, perhaps his most distinctive feature is there in verse 2. Lips anointed with grace. Here is someone whose judgments were faultless, whose wisdom was obvious, whose every word was powerful, compelling, trustworthy. Nothing phony, nothing hypocritical. When he spoke, people listened, and even his opponents said things like, no one ever spoke like that. In Luke 4.22, the crowd is said to be amazed at the gracious words 
that came from his lips. People were captivated when they listened to Jesus speaking, for he understood their lives. And he said things like, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 8, 31, 32. Who doesn't want deep liberation? Grace-blessed lips speak grace-filled words. And people loved it. They couldn't get enough of it. And all this, end of verse 2, since God has blessed you forever. Here is someone who has known blessing from eternity past into eternity future. This is somehow an eternal king. But it's not only speech. There are verses 3 to 5, the victories. For this king is not just gracious, he's mighty. He's gentle, yes, but he's not soft. He's a winner. He has an edge, verse 5, sharp arrows pierce enemies' hearts. Nations fall beneath his feet. He quells opposition. Every battle he fights, he wins, and he rides forth victoriously. And then do you see in verse 4, he promotes the three great causes which are close to his heart. There in verse 4, truth, humility, and justice. Verse 4, by the way, inspired another hymn that we like to sing, Ride on, ride on in majesty. Here surely is glimpsed the mighty white horse riding conqueror of Revelation 19.11, whose rider is called Faithful and True, who wages war and judges with justice, whose name is the word of God, and who has on his robe and thigh written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's no missing the stature of the king here in this prophetic word. What are we looking for in a leader? Sort of topical, isn't it, really? Here is a king who champions truth and justice, who, verse 7, loves righteousness and hates wickedness, who is set above all companions, who is anointed with the oil of joy, who is, verse 8, all aftershaved up, and ready to leave the opulence of palaces adorned with ivory, and yet who always acts with humility. And you know what? He wants not merely our vote, but to woo us and marry us. And he does that not just with his words, but also with his warfare on our behalf. He fights for us in the church. But then second, just look at the supremacy of the king, verses 6 to 9. Do you see that? Verse 6. Verse 6, I suspect, would have stopped the first listeners absolutely in their tracks. The psalmist who's praising the king on the wedding day, as you did if you were a court poet, suddenly talks to the king. And no Hebrew would ever say to a human king, your throne, O God. Pagan nations might well have thought of their king, their kings as gods, but Jews didn't. And this writer was saying more than he knew. 
And it took the later writer of Hebrews 1 expressly to spell out for us that this is, as Hebrews 1.8 puts it, about the Son. These verses. Extraordinary. But the plot deepens in verse 7, where the psalm writer speaks to the king of God, your God. The language is unsettling, isn't it? Here is one being addressed who is both God and yet somehow has a God. May this just be a glimpse of the incarnation a thousand years before it happened? Is this what may have caused the shepherds to whisper in awestruck wonder of the birth at Bethlehem, Emmanuel, a baby, God with us? Here is a king of whom we have to say, God is his God and he is God. So let's never trivialize or sentimentalize our faith or our Lord. Does Jesus hold a place in your life worthy of God? That's the question. Anselm once said, God is that than which a greater cannot be conceived. This king is supreme. And then third, we see the bride of the king, verses 10 to 17. Because this king has come to get married. He desires a relationship. He's come for a bride. He's prepared everything, including himself, for that. The venue and the music, verse 8, are sorted. The presents from well-connected friends are on the way, verse 12. The bride is dressed magnificently as she's led to the wedding ceremony, verses 13 and 14. And that the king should even want to share his throne and palace with anyone comes as a joyful surprise to everybody, verse 15. And the bride feels perhaps a bit of understandable apprehension, pre-wedding nerves, not uncommon. And the psalmist, like a wise relative at the church door, verse 10, helps with three tips. Listen, pay attention. Here are things that will make this marriage fly. Well, listen to the echoes for us in the church. First, there has to be a break with the past, verse 10. A bit of leaving and cleaving. Forget your people and your father's house. There's now a new allegiance, new priorities. The king does not want a marriage strained as his bride is constantly running back to the old nature, the old life and loyalties looking over her shoulder for approval from the world and the flesh and what people think and all that. There has to be a real forgetting the things that are behind, as Philippians 3.13 puts it. So there's a break with the past, verse 10. Second, there's a complete honoring in the present. Verse 11, let the king be enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your Lord. Isn't this the count everything as loss for the excellence of following him? As Derek Kidner puts it in his little commentary, the bride's submission to her partner as both husband and king goes hand in hand with the dignity she also derives from him. His friends and subject are now hers. She is the gainer, not the loser, by her homage. So a break with the past, 
a complete honoring in the present, and third, there is to be a determined focus on the future, verses 16 and 17. You know, the church is one of the few institutions in the world which actually has a future, an eternal future, sharing the very throne of Christ where we shall judge the world with him and rule the new creation as his consort. Well, what then are the takeaways for us from this wonderful psalm? First, a word about marriage itself. Look, I've I've been in family law for over 40 years. I'm a realist. I know many wonderful marriages and many that have gone horribly, tragically, and painfully wrong. I know people who long to be married and others whose marriages are difficult or deeply disappointing and they ache inside. Marriage exists in the Bible always to hint at another love, a higher love, a better groom. It's a vivid metaphor for the central message of the Christian faith, the gospel. It's a pervasive biblical picture of our relationship to God. It is meant to prepare us for something else. For one day, marriage will end. In the resurrection, the bridegroom said, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage. Matthew 22, 20. God placed a bride and groom at the center of creation to plant the seed of a future marriage between Christ and the church. And when Jesus returns, however, the marriages we have known will give way to The marriage for which we were all made. That's the vision of Revelation 19 and 21. Marriage doesn't exist just to remedy the challenges of singleness. Marriage exists to tell us and remind us that we need Jesus. It's a sort of living exposition of Christ's relentless and passionate pursuit of his people and of our restless ache for him. A word about marriage. Second, a word about the church. I felt a little ashamed this week at how often I feel negative about the church. You know, it's so easy to grow discouraged, to get grumpy. The church this, the church that. I read too many blogs. I follow too much church politicking. I have too much professional exposure to the seedy underbelly of church life. And it's easy to scowl, believe me, at the dysfunctional family the wider church seems to be. Sometimes the church, frankly, is anything but beautiful. Well, this psalm has been a tonic this week. It's probably as near as the Psalter gets to the flavor of the Song of Songs. Remember the words of the bridegroom to the church there, Songs 115? How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Said that to myself this week about the church. Group of sinners, forgiven sinners, and yet still sinners, plagued by division, beset by scandal, often lacking love and confidence, fumbling and fearful. 
half the time, and yet loved and desired beyond measure. And even Paul could say that at the end of the age, the church will be found without, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, Ephesians 5.27. So I want to ease up a little on my negativity about Christ's bride. No, not to whitewash the failures of individual leaders or ugly tendencies in sinful hearts, including my own. Not to call evil good. Not to pretend the church is yet what she should be or will be. Just to remember the bigger picture. He loves us and has set our heart on us. And it gets better because he thinks we're beautiful. And that fortifies my flaky identity. And it dissolves some of my grumpiness. I am his and he is mine. If you want to understand how committed Jesus is to the church, here's your answer. He didn't just create it and let it be. He marries it. He isn't just our almighty king. He's our perfect husband. He longs for our exclusive affections. And, you know, he sees more of our brokenness than we do. He sees us in all our remaining ugliness, and yet he loves us. That's how much he cares about local churches. That's how committed he is to us. At the end of time, the wedding feast of the lambs, we saw in the Revelation 19 passage, at that feast, the church will be beautiful. But only because clean, righteous linen will be given her to wear. Revelation 19.8. You know, the church is not Jesus' hobby. It's his marriage. The marriage for which we were all made. We are invaluably his. And he is ours. Commitment does not get any bigger than that. He's standing at the end of the aisle of history, waiting for us and smiling. Well, when I think of what it means to be the church in this way, as Christ's bride, as heaven's outpost, as God's family, as an embassy on mission for the truth, with justice, in humility, church becomes exciting as nothing else can. And when we gather Sunday by Sunday, we do well to be amazed at who we are. Last week, we thought about Jesus, our shepherd, Today, we've been thinking about Jesus, our lover. Either way, his attention is constantly focused on us. There is nothing quite like being a Christian. He could not care more for the church than he does. He married her. He died for her. As the great English theologian John Owen said once, every day whilst we live is his wedding day. And then finally, a word about the Lord. Jack Hayward is a Californian pastor now, I think, in his 80s. He and his wife visited England in 1977 during the Queen's Silver Jubilee, and he found the whole thing profoundly and unexpectedly moving. 
And he was struck by the grandeur of the celebrations and the joy of the people in Her Majesty the Queen. And they'd been on a visit to Blenheim Palace and driving away, he found himself reaching for the words to capture his feeling of, well, awe really. Words that might transpose the weight of earthly experience he'd felt into the key of heaven musically. And he asked his wife to jot down a few thoughts. And they later became a song. And it sung across the world. And the word he reached for was majesty. A profoundly biblical theme close to this psalmist's heart. We sing it here sometimes. Majesty. Worship his majesty. Unto Jesus be all glory, honor, and praise. Majesty, kingdom authority, flow from his throne onto his own, his anthem raise. Well, we're the people on whom this Lord has set his heart, for whom he gave his life, and to whom he will return as the great bridegroom. There's no other relationship that comes close to offering the peace, hope, and deep joy of this one. Let me ask the band to come back for our final song, and as they do so, let me lead us in a short prayer. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ in all his majesty. And this reminder of our inestimable privilege in his church as his bride. Make us truly your own. Fill us with hope and joy in believing to your greater glory. Amen.